On this episode of Tips from the Toflo, we'll talk about wearing multiple hats. I'm bringing back a project that was 10 years in the making. And I'll talk with my guest Don Komarechka about image theft and about his latest book on macro photography. This is Tips from the Top Floor, episode 902 for the end of November 2020. Tips from the top, from the top floor, tips from the top, all right, from the top floor. <sighs> oh my God, how, how does this thing work? Where, what do I, where do I, how do I, um, yeah. Anyway, let me try. <laughs> I've totally forgotten how to record a podcast. Um, no, I haven't. Of course I haven't. But um, it's, yeah, it's kind of unusual to speak into a microphone and not have a guest with me. This is really, in, this is an interesting experience. So episode 902, Tips from the Top Floor, is back. Yes, uh, today I have a special guest and that's Don Komarechka, who I shot a segment with. Um, which is on video and here in audio on the show. And, um, but, but before that, of course, <laughs> this is the, like the once monthly show now. Um, I'm trying to get back to weekly, but for now it's a bit slower. Um, but yeah, I'm, I just decided to put a bit less pressure on myself. You know, pressure is never good. It doesn't make you better. It doesn't, it doesn't full stop. And, um, and in addition, I keep telling you on these episodes that I have um, other things going on that are out there. So there's the future of photography, um, there is Curiously Polar, and there's Happy Shooting for the German listeners, of course, which is weekly, and they're all weekly. And um, that, well, first of all, keeps me busy, but also keeps me kind of sane because it's with other people. And right now that is really helpful very very helpful but of course i'm also using that time for my project so again just to reiterate very briefly there is uh, sensei.photo my education platform now so um i do the odd uh session with someone who wants to learn something about photography that works out well so i'm i'm very happy about that <clears throat> there is also um, I don't think I've talked about it here, have I? Uh, the OBS Ninja Academy, which is... Okay, so all these remote productions I do are uh, quality-wise better than what you could get with Zoom or Skype. Um, and there's a tool that I use for that. It's called OBS Ninja, which is, um, let's say, an open-source video slash audio transportation framework so to get a remote guest into the show at decent quality and you can see this on the youtube segment uh with don komarechka um to get someone in at, at good quality low latency so that uh, you can have a fluid discussion um obvious ninja is a is a tool is an essential tool for me at this point but it's open source and it is not easy to understand. It does have a learning curve. Once you wrap your uh, mind around it, it gets <laughs> it. <coughs> excuse me. It gets easier, and um, now it's completely intuitive to me. And I'm just so in love with what this thing can do. It's super powerful. It, you have control control over everything: bit rates, codecs, uh, and so on and so on. So. Um, I started some consulting around that because for the last 
seven, eight months now. I've uh, I've really done deep deep dives with uh, Inobis Ninja, and um, I now use it for like family conferences. <laughs> I've I've just replaced everything with it, but also for productions, it's amazing. Um, but it takes a bit of learning. So um, this is an interesting piece of new piece of my business now because people want those they need those remote productions and they're fed up with the low quality that you get from some of these other tools so um i've just just the other night <laughs> just the other night i've done a consulting session with uh someone who's um setting up a live stream with like i don't know 10 people in different combinations for interviews remote interviews and um yeah, so this is an, a, a, one of the things that's keeping me busy. But here is the real big thing right now, and that is that the MIP is coming back. The MIP, the Marquard International Pinhole. Yes, it's coming. Finally coming back. It was only six years. It only took me six years. So uh, for those of you who might be new to this, what is the MIP? Um, the MIP is... Well, it's an idea that is 10 years in the making. So let me give you a quick history lesson. Because 2010, 10 years ago, that was the year when I when I started to dig into large format photography. 4x5 photography. And uh, that's when my photography, my understanding of photography fundamentally changed. And that's when I began digging into, into well, 2009 actually was when I began digging into uh, tilt shift and that whole thing has like there's a whole uh, a whole lot of things that came out of that, including the wide angle photography book, including the film photography book, and so on. So 2010 was a was a very uh, pivotal pivotal is that the word pivotal year for me, and uh, that's also when the idea formed that I want to make a pinhole camera. And looking at all sorts of pinhole cameras out there, it was just. Yeah, it just didn't. They most of them were kind of nice, but none of them really appealed to me. I wanted this to be large format. I wanted it to be compatible with film cassettes, with four by five international film cassettes, with digital scanning backs, with medium format backs, and so on. And I wanted it to be, it to be kind of a. It's almost like an art piece that you use every day. It's at, <clears throat> from a design point of view, from a materials point of view. It was. That was the idea, and um, so I got in touch with my friend Jürgen, who is a German furniture maker, a, a master craftsman, and uh, he and I kind of worked on the designs and on details, and um, and then I I got external like pinhole holders just to try out what's on the market, and what I could find was just not good enough so i started working with um with a guy who does uh, metal work who um can turn pieces and things and um and the first try wasn't exactly where i wanted to be but it was a good idea finding um time and then i got in touch with uh like another like super master craftsman who's again german who's it was just amazing in his craft. And uh, that's when we got the metal parts and those get anodized. So that's anodized aluminum um, metal parts. Extremely expensive to have made, custom made. But I didn't 
like what was on the market. So that's how this came together. And then um, we devised the, the attachment system for the bags, which is a combination of leather and uh, rubber straps that you can just pretty much put uh, pretty much anything on the back that is on the market. Um, and uh, that, that, again, a crafts uh, person in Germany uh, who's, who works with leather made those for me and a different like colors and styles and so on. So the MIP is, um, and, and, and we sold 10. 10 of those initially because um, that was a, a nice round number and they are all different. They are all one of a kind, different kinds of woods, very like high quality polished. Check the show, check the show notes for photos. Um, so anyway, that was um, 20, I think 14, early 2014. That was when those 10 Marquardt International pinholes sold. It has a focal length of 65 millimeters, which for a large format camera is very wide angle. So uh, it has a custom made super high quality pinhole, which is, um, yeah, again, I the pinhole itself, I tried so many different ones and there was almost nothing usable on the market until I found, uh, again, a master of his craft who makes these. Um, the pinhole itself is covered in uh, aluminum discs and then inside the actual pinhole material is a thin copper foil with like a burr-free super flat hole that is just like yeah it's perfect it's perfect under the microscope it is absolutely perfect so um yeah the initial cameras 10 of them were made and sold and then the project kind of went dormant for <laughs> almost six years <laughs> and uh but what we did back then is with um w when we had those metal those hardware pieces made which is the pinhole holder an attachment screw-in mechanism in the back the the attachment hole uh, the attachment buttons on the side and the tripod thread and when we had those made um they, I mean, just making 10 sets of those, that wasn't worth it. So we made more. And those have been sitting there for six years, waiting for cameras to be built around them. And that is what's going on right now. So the MIP is coming back. That is the first thing. The second uh, information here is that it is going to be coming back in batches. Yes, we're not talking 10 more cameras. We're talking a bit more than 10 more cameras. We're talking, um, as far as I uh, have the overview right now, uh, I think we're talking 44 MIPs um, that are piece by piece being made. And uh, that's how many sets of hardware we have. So... Yeah, they will. They won't be released in one big chunk because um, it takes time to make them, to make them well. So they will be released in four chunks of eleven. So we'll do four batches um, of eleven, put them on the website, and when they are done, the next batch will be produced. So that'll take a few weeks, um, and then the next batch comes out. And after those four batches of eleven cameras. Um, that will be the final product. That's 
that's the end of the MIP. That will there won't be any more MIPs after that. There will be uh, history. So what you can do is get one of those MIPs, and uh, yeah. So the MIP again, it's <clears throat> it's it's a it's a very individual product because you have uh 10 um, um 10 <laughs> still at the first batch run no you have a whole bunch of these cameras um at with different woods with different kinds of uh woods being used and those are not just like any woods they are like really nice woods well, let me let me let me bring up that list i do have the list somewhere here okay i should have prepared better but oh here is the list of words. Um, I've, tr I've tried my best to do a translation of those, but um, I don't know the, the 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 lingo that well. So I have uh, I have just the basic translations. But if anyone listening to this is a, knows their way around different kind of quality woods. Uh, then I'd be happy to get some input. So there is, of course, my, the, the default oak, ash is there, walnut is there. Um, then there's a, a pear tree, but it's called flamed pear tree in German, Birnbaum, flammig, which is, I think, it's not, it's not flamed as in fire. It's more like the way it looks. Then there is um, barred maple. I've Again, that, that's what fell out of the translation. Then there is, uh, yeah, walnut again, um, pear foxed pear or pear foxed um that would translate to birne gestockt in german again i don't really know if that's the proper translation um there's rosewood there's uh you eibe you burl eibe masa again i'm not sure there's hornbeam which hornbeam i always thought of as a kind of a boring wood because it is it's been used so much in the 80s here in germany everywhere in furniture but um and 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 just seeing what jürgen the the the, the craftsman who makes those boxes what he came up with with interesting grains of wood and so on is just yeah it's amazing um, there's one in German called Olive Esche, which is olive ash, I guess. And then there's a wild service tree, which is in German is Elsbeere, which I didn't even know existed, but it looks amazing. Uh, rosewood. Um, and let's see. No, that's, that's, that's kind of the different woods that are being used here. I think there's a couple more um, that I just couldn't translate. So again, if you work with wood, if you know these weird special terms and you know the translations, uh, get in touch. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I might need help there. But anyway, um, that is kind of the story of the MIP. So uh, we're still putting things together. I have a few more pinholes on order, like the actual pinholes um, are being made right now. Um, I'm still looking at a packaging concept and the price, of course. That's kind of the most important one. So the initial MIP, the original Marquardt International pinhole was 1,000 euros per piece. And uh, back then I alluded that the next runs would be 
cheaper and that is the case because um the first run also helped finance most of the um most of the metal hardware that was custom made so um there's no cost there anymore so that really helps set off um or, or lower the price for the new one so what we're looking at for the 2021 mip or the new mip let's call it, call it new mip even though it is essentially the same camera as the original mip um just with different woods and different serial numbers and different straps um is going to be 599 euros that's the price for the mip and uh, that includes the camera the pinhole um which by the way is a uh, 0.3 millimeters which on that camera with that focal length is uh equivalent to f213 so yes that's definitely a long exposure territory there um and it includes one strap the original mip included two straps um we're also not doing the the uh, shipment box anymore which was amazing but way more expensive to make than uh than what yeah we'll we'll pack it in a in a in a packing pouch of sorts um or wrap it in a, something like an x wrap so you'll get it nicely packaged but um yeah that brings the price down to 599 and then if you want additional straps um they will be on the website so there's uh, options to add straps i'm also looking into getting a, a second pinhole option from the same maker but instead of the 0.3 millimeters uh, aperture uh an 0.6 millimeter aperture to let more light in to reduce the uh shutter speeds at the cost of less sharpness but hey it's a pinhole <laughs> so um there will be some optional things that you can add and uh other than that yeah the mip the marquardt international pinhole a handmade large format 4x5 uh, pinhole camera made in Germany handmade by German craftspeople and uh, uh, yeah and 44 more to come batches of 11 and once they're gone they're gone that'll be the MIP so yeah um, it's it's on the web at internationalpinhole.com so go check that out it uh, right now there's a list that you can get your name on if you're interested or if you want to leave me a message around that um get your email on so and here we as soon as are they go online today's I guest as guess announced in the beginning in it's Don Koretschka almost we're, we still almost have a regular a do, right <laughs> maybe in i'm glad to be back you haven't gotten tired of me yet um, no not at all actually um when you talk, talked yeah, about uh, your book last time out. we and uh, uh we, we we agreed that there we should go. come back the when it's getting much much closer to other than that and i think we are there so just let's go to the guest just as a quick introduction again see what um, I think many to. people might know you from your uh, Snowflakes book and um, the Sky Crystals. And um, you have also looked into like a whole bunch of things. I, I think mad scientist is the right term for you. I, and, um, I love that term. In fact, if I, I don't know if it's in reach here, but I, I do I do have a propeller hat here that I can put on. <laughs> there and, we go. So that's, uh, I'm not going to wear that for the show, but... <laughs> 
<laughs> that's okay so anyway um yeah i yeah pe people have seen you here so is there anything you want to add in terms of uh introducing uh, i i love to tinker and experiment and, and see mm -hmm. the world through not my own eyes uh, like not the world that i would normally be aware of and I did a um, a video recently for DP Review TV where I took this uh, beastly contraption of a camera that uh, uses uh, ultraviolet light to take images. And uh, so this is a modified Lumix S1 with a very special Nikon Rayfact uh, ultraviolet transmissive lens and filters that block visible light but let ultraviolet light pass through. I know these from infrared. infrared. Yeah. I, yeah, I and so... Uh, the, these filters have to block not only the visible spectrum, but also all of the infrared spectrum. Because if about 1% of the infrared light gets through to the sensor, that equals about the entirety of the ultraviolet light that the camera is sensitive to. Uh, <laughs> and, and so it's a really tricky thing to use. And about the only thing that you can see is, you know, uh, defects in people's skin if you're a dermatologist, um, and patterns in flowers that insects can see that we can't. But um. that's a fun subject to explore. So I did some of that. Again, that puts that mad scientist moniker uh, in its proper place when I start to do those sorts of things. <laughs> so, um, infrared, uh, ultraviolet, um, and the macro thing, of course. And I think that's why, we, that's, that's why I got you back here to tell us a bit about the book that is going to come out and maybe some yeah, of the things and behind the scenes. I think that's what everyone's interested in. Um, let's take a look at a few concepts that I've been exploring over the last, let's say, two years. Since I started producing the book uh, and have evolved, made mistakes, and come across some serendipitous moments along the way. Um, so why don't you bring up the, the first image that I have here, Chris, because I just think that this go. is so much fun. Um, this, uh, my wife doesn't like because she's a beautiful talented abstract oil painter and she sees this and she says that's as good as the stuff that i could do that would take me months to create and you did this overnight <laughs> um and, and so uh, this is citric acid crystals um that are being cross-polarized but by the way anyone who's listening to this right now as the audio podcast this would be the point where you click the link in the description that takes you to the video <laughs> version because <laughs> right. I, I think it's worth uh, seeing those photos and not just hearing about them. Sorry, go. Uh, uh, well, and to describe it, it's a, it's a wash of colored crystals, almost like a wave of a waterfall transitioning from blues to yellows to then whites and then to some dark grays across the frame with what looks like little rocks amidst this wave of crystals that are deferring the flow of it. Um, and uh, this is uh, one such example. Another a simple example and citric acid is an easy thing um an easy thing to to get amazon sells it i'm sure you can get it on ebay health food stores would sell it too um and this version of it looks almost like feathers of a bird's wing um and uh same exact ingredients same exact setup and it's remarkably easy to do except so when wait, you make wait, mistakes wait, and break things let's let's go back to the colors on this so they come from what exactly so um he, uh, the, the phenomenon is called birefringence, uh, more commonly called cross-polarization, where um, if you have a polarized light source and you have another polarizer on your camera that's in opposition to that or otherwise blocking the light, normally you know, polarizers in opposition, you'd, you'd see nothing. It'd be black unless there's something in between that, for lack of a physics lesson, mucks with the angles of light. Um, and if it 
if it changes the angles of light in particular ways, then when it passes through the other polarizer, it blocks the original light source, but it doesn't block the light that has changed direction in between. And that can create some crazy colors. You can do this test with a simple like piece of uh, cheap plastic that I don't know why I have like a piece of packaging from something uh, mm-hmm. that's just still sitting on my desk. That would create rainbow colors. Um, you know, so, so you need two, ornaments, you need two polarizers that, that this goes in between. Pretty much. That's exactly it. That's yeah. exactly it. And, and and I'll show you the setup that, uh, that that this this is a fairly complex setup when you look at the image on the right because I'm attaching a microscope objective to my camera to get mm-hmm. high magnification. You can do this with the Canon MPE lens. Laowa has uh, other lenses that'll get five or you know uh, within the ballpark of what I'm doing here. The image on the right, um, this uh, it's basically a flashlight with a polarizing filter on it and a microscope slide on a crab clamp with a polarizing filter just resting on top of it. This is like a totally MacGyvered cross-polarizing microscope. It doesn't sound too Uh, complicated. It's not that complicated at all, except I didn't expect the LED light to put out as much heat as it did, and heat destroys polarizing film. And so I completely destroyed a very expensive Breakthrough Filters polarizing filter in the process of learning a lesson the hard way. Yeah, LEDs do so. do make heat. That's a thing. Yes, maybe not as much as a, as a, as a incandescent light bulb, but but when um, you're blocking yeah. the output and it's just all coalescing on on the filter, I've yes. since learned. Yeah, put a gap there, and that problem is solved. So don't follow my exact <laughs> diagram here because you will break things in the process. Um, so that was a fun little experiment, and you don't have to use citric acid. You can use ascorbic acid, otherwise known as vitamin C, um, tartaric acid, uh, MSM, a very complex and chemical And they, they will name. all look very different? or They'll all look very different, all incredibly different. Um, in these cases, what I'm doing is I'm just making a solution with water uh, and then letting it dry on a microscope slide. And as it dries, it crystallizes. And that's it. Uh, so... It's uh, maybe a good experiment to do in the wintertime when the air is less humid, so it'll dry even faster, uh, Mm. and uh, you'll get results within a couple of hours. You could set up a whole bunch of slides, uh, go to bed, wake up in the morning, and right now, sometimes it's hard for people to have a reason to get out of bed, Uh, and so this would be a great reason to jump out of bed and go see what crystals you made overnight. So that that was fun. Wonderful. Um, Again, you know what? what? I really like that. Um, that you give away those secrets. There are so many photographers out there who have like their secret method, their secret sauce, and they and but but um, just being that open and sharing how this can be done with everyone. And I, I learned from is... others doing the same thing as well. And and Chris, I, I want to share another image that uh, sure, illustrates a. Um, this is the image that started my photographic career. Okay, I call it Maple Leaf Flag. And uh, it's it's a photograph that, uh, you know, it's red maple leaves, real leaves on a bed of fresh snow. And I did that image over a decade ago. And I thought, you know, with some techniques that I've been seeing from other photographers that are like freezing flowers and things in water, and you get these weird bubbles and stuff that show up. Mo Devlin was a, was a guy that I saw recently uh, in a presentation, and he was also very free with his techniques. And so I took that uh, uh, to hand, and I decided to create a version of this now in 2020, uh, with instead of it being staged outside on snow, it's recreated um, inside of ice itself. And <laughs> So this is a block of ice, you froze that inside there. Yeah, well, it's a very thin block of ice. And, uh, you know, it's just the 
same. I actually went back to my old neighborhood where I used to live and I gathered leaves from the same trees to be as authentic as I could to the original. Um, And this is the first time anybody's seeing it because I'm still working on it. I might tweak some colors and, uh, you know, adjust some brightness and and what have you on that. Um, Real behind the scenes look. That's awesome. Exactly. (laughs) But this is uh, this is what it was. Um, Just a whole bunch of LED flashlights and this sheet of ice with um, uh, with leaves encapsulated within that. And uh, that uh, that's that's what the magic was. That's all it um, takes. So wow. sometimes it's really inventive from a sort of a gorilla standpoint. Like you make your subject. Uh, this is entirely manufactured by me in order to then create a photograph uh, that results from that. But but I did want to talk about um, this image in particular, Chris, because um, at least the the first version of it, um, th- this guy right here, this not only is my most famous photograph. But it's also my most stolen photograph. Um, <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine. I think I've seen that several times online. Yes. Uh, do you ever uh, have your photos taken without permission? And do you do anything about uh, copyright infringement and enforcement? Um, I don't do anything about it. But yes, I get pictures stolen. Um, it has yet to happen that someone is using them in a commercial context, like printing them on T-shirts and then selling them. That's That hasn't, well, to my knowledge, hasn't happened before. But if someone puts that on their blog to illustrate something, then that's fine. If they if, if I have a watermark on there and they crop that out, I get a bit um, antsy. And I, I, I send out takedown notices in, in those cases. But, I've asked people um, to to take something down, not not in official fashion, but just as an email saying, "Hey, that's not okay. Could you do this?" And I've I've, are, I've, I've done that before. People comply. Uh, I've done that before, but I sometimes get very belligerent comments, like mm-hmm. "Go f yourself" uh, mm-hmm. to uh, to censor it. But um, oh, then and so that I just, would probably that stresses me out. Game, yes. So I often just sort of avoid doing that and just send out DMCA takedown notices, especially if it's on a social media platform like Facebook yeah. or Twitter. Then it's easy, yeah. Uh, and then you just fill out the form. So I had somebody on on Twitter recently um, say, and quite arrogantly uh how dare you uh uh when they were using this image as the header photo on their twitter account for branding um and and i schooled them you can check out my my twitter account you know my handle is is right below me uh wherever that happens to be right about there um that uh that that, that's my pinned tweet right now and that'll stay there for a little while where you can go and uh and enjoy um a little rant on copyright but that comes up everywhere i mean if you want to focus on my camera uh for a second chris I just want to show this wonderful thing, which is a book um, printed in Turkey um, about religion or uh, Islam of some kind. I'm not sure exactly what they were trying to do using my maple leaf flag image as the cover photo um, on a book in, in pretty Turkish. Bold. <laughs> That's pretty bold. bold. I have not yet been able to find a, uh, a lawyer in Turkey willing to take that case on. Um, mm. But uh, I, I deal with commercial infringements all the time. And it's so frustrating, especially when, you know, you do your best work and then people just yeah. steal it. So anyhow, that's that that is what it is. And uh, I've sent over a thousand takedown notices this year alone. I mean, it, it's a it's a big thing, um, not just for this image. There's a bunch of my work that gets stolen. Um, and sometimes it's tricky. You know, I, I've even had to resort, especially for foreign language websites to uh, to go to, um, uh, you know, find the IP address for the website. Uh, which is easy to do. You can just like type ping in the command command prompt, and it you know mm-hmm. shows you uh, where you're going. And then put that into uh, DNS checker, uh, and find the DNS registry entry for that IP address to see who owns it. 
And whoever owns it almost always has an abuse contact, an email address there. And you send a DMCA takedown notice. It's just a template. And I just switch some names and, and files out. Uh, and I send it that way. And, uh, and that's more or less they comply. Unless they're in like Iran or Russia, um, then they just sometimes just, they, they, they respond and they say, no, we're not doing that. Well, see, um, you when you say a thousand this year alone, is that, uh, do you do these manually? Do you have someone to help you do that? How does I, that I do work? them manually. I mean, if I'm, if I'm doing, uh, if, if I'm doing uh, infringements, I can do about one a minute. Um, if, if I've lined them all up, if I spend like a day uh, having them open as web browser tabs, um, I can fill out that Facebook form so fast, I can do it in like 45 seconds. Mm. Um, and one at a time and at a time and at a time. And, and that's muscle memory stuff. I can be watching, you know, my favorite or listening to my favorite podcast or stuff at the same time. It's, it's just like knitting a sweater, I guess, at that point. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just what it is. <clears throat> So, so, so yeah. is that is? I mean, let, let me be blunt here. Is that also a source of income? Are you, do you send out invoices to people saying uh, you can keep using it? You can keep using it, but uh, here's what you would pay for that. Yeah. So, uh, t typically, what I would be doing is if there is a commercial infringement uh, where it's in Canada, for example, I've got a mm -hmm. Canadian lawyer that I know I can work with very well, and uh, and I'll send if there's a physical address exactly uh you know where uh where we can send a letter then they're more likely to take it um and uh yeah it there are settlements that arise from that mm. um from companies and corporations usually i mean for individuals i'll typically send a, a takedown notice but if it's a, a commercial infringement if they're using my photo in, in branding or making money or promoting their company in oh, any way definitely then you got to enforce it. And, so what's, uh, what's the ratio between, let's say, the, the, really, the real bold commercial stuff and the blog? That I'd say maybe about 3 to 5% are really viable commercial infringements. Okay. Um, but that's, you know, if I'm sending out a thousand takedown notices, that's still a lot that are viable to send to a lawyer during that same time period. So mm -hmm. um, that that just kind of... It bugs me that it happens. Um, I, I'm sure people learn the lesson the hard way when they have to pay for it uh, or when their Facebook account gets locked because they used mm -hmm. my image three times in a row and uh, I send takedown notices for everyone. And, well, uh, what are you going to do? I mean, you could pay Does... me a retroactive license at that point and, and technically then you would have the rights to use it and I can rescind the takedown. But yeah. that gets into the weeds of all of this stuff. And I like to just be a creative person and not have my work stolen. And 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 it takes away time from you to be creative. Um, the question that, I, that I'd also have is um, looking at the co whole copyright uh, thing. It is different in different parts of the world. In Germany, it's different yes. than in the U.S. It might be different than in Canada. So, is there is there a fair use clause in Canada? As yeah, we America? call it fair dealing. It's uh, it uh -huh. mimics more the U.K.'s version than the U.S.'s version, but they're both okay. very similar. And so, you can use it for satire or parody. Uh, usually, you have to give credit. You can use it for private study or education. Right. But again, uh, for critique purposes, etc. But credit has to be given. It has to be done mm. within a certain context. Um, and uh, and so. If you fail any of those pillars uh, of those requirements, it, it does not qualify. Uh, and so most of the uses do not qualify uh, in that regard. However, um, sometimes it does, and there's nothing I can do. If somebody posts uh, you know, this image online and says, well, take a look at the great work that Don Kamarechka did. Um, he did it this way. He did it to, to blah, blah, blah. And they're really reviewing and critiquing my image. Well, they have the right to do that. 
right? I can't take mm-hmm. that right away from it because that is part of the copyright law. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also state that uh, you know a good number of my infringements do come from the U.S., although this one obviously is more centered around Canada. Um, and I, on January 1st and 2nd of this year, I, I had some previously registered images within the U.S., this one and maybe a handful of others. I went through every year's worth of my uh, portfolio work that I've published, and I registered it with the U.S. Copyright Office. And mm-hmm. costs $55 per year of work, uh, up to 750 images. Uh, and all it is is filling out forms and spreadsheets and just, you know, hitting a pay button at the end. And uh, that, to go back over... 12 years of work uh, took me a day and a half to do. Uh, okay, and not so, so bad. I could, I, yeah, and I did have to spend like six, $700 US to get everything registered in my portfolio. But what that's does an registration get you? Because we don't have that here in Germany. We, we have it here in Canada technically, although it doesn't change the metrics when you want to go and enforce a claim. Um, but in the US, if you don't register your copyright, you can claim actual damages, what you might have licensed an image to somebody for. But no lawyer is going to take on a case like that unless it's a really, really big yeah. scenario. Um, so by registering your copyright, you can claim statutory damages uh, against the use of your image. And those numbers go incredibly high. Um, so much so that lawyers are willing to work on contingency as a result, meaning that they would get a percentage of whatever the settlement is if it does get settled. So as soon as you find a viable commercial infringement, you no longer have to pay out front for your legal uh, legal services in order to defend that. And that's where it becomes viable for people um, uh, to, uh, to, to fight you know, the good fight to protect their work. And if everybody did this a little bit more often, I think it would be more in the public eye that people shouldn't just do a Google image search and find something and then realize, oh, it's on Google, it must be free to use because it most certainly isn't. And ignorance is not a defense. So what do you do to track down the images? What do you use a special service? Do you have any, if you can tell us any hidden, hidden, yeah, I, I do use it, stuff? Uh, a special service. Um, there's a, a website called infringement.report. And that, that's the URL report is the TLD. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, infringement.report, they, they've got a trial account if you want to throw up, I think, three images to see how it works. Uh, I pay, I think it's $25 US a month to upload 300 images. And they will scan through all sorts of different resources where the images show up online. Your images become a search term. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they give you a daily report. Um, if you want to just see where an image might show up because you think it might have been popular and shared around, um, you can use the Google Images search engine. Uh, Bing.com slash images works as well. I don't use Bing for anything, really, but its image algorithm is different than Google's, and it finds different results. Uh, and so too, uh, and is actually quite good, is Yandex, the uh, the Russian search engine. Um, their reverse image search algorithm is still different from everybody else's. It has more misses uh, than solid hits, but some of those misses are people that have heavily modified the image by like <laughs> putting text over top of it uh, to advertise themselves. Um, and uh, that's a derivative of work for which I still own the copyright to. And so I use those services and there's others, but that's enough to get most people started and uh, to start discovering. And for infringement.report, if you if they find one viable infringement in a year uh, that you can send to a lawyer, it more than pays for the entire year's worth of that service. And um, and so that's, uh, that's how I go about it. And um, I hope more photographers do the same because if you just let people walk all over you silently, you don't know what's happening, um, that people are stealing your work, then they'll continue to not only steal your work, but others because they just don't have the knowledge that it's wrong and that itself is wrong 
So, <sighs> back to the book. So yeah. <laughs> you've you've um, you've been how much time have you have you spent in putting the macro? What's the official title of it again? Uh, macro photography: the universe at our feet. And and oh. I can say that the number of hours is in the thousands. Um, yeah. In order to not only do page layouts and the writing, um, and uh, and all of the work to create the images and shooting the behind the scenes stuff and creating language that everybody can understand. Um, there was one part that I was describing the true effect of cross-polarizing crystals that we just saw. Um, and it took me two or three days to write two or three paragraphs just to make sure I got the science right, bounced it off of actual scientists that understood this stuff, but distilling it down into terms that my wife could read and understand what was happening. Um, and so that's that's a lot of people take that for granted, uh, that those are just simple words and they come together and they can read it and understand it. There's a lot going on behind the scenes and a lot of research to make sure mm. that what I'm saying is right. And in fact, when I wrote Sky Crystals, I got a fact wrong that slapped me in the face when I was making this new book. Uh, and that's that every lens um, that has an f-stop number on the barrel, that's measured at infinity focus. And as you get closer and closer to the closest focusing distance, that number actually changes. It's a fluid <laughs> number. And by the time you get to one-to-one -one macro magnification, you actually add two stops to whatever that was at infinity. I always oh, thought really? it was one stop. It's two stops. And it was cl clear as day. If I were to look up the, uh, the manual for the Canon MPE 65 millimeter uh, macro lens, which goes from 1x to 5x magnification, it doesn't focus to infinity. Yet its theoretical aperture at infinity is f2.8. Oh, so and they so, sell it as an f2.8 even though you will never be able to get to f2.8 with it? Yeah, the, the <laughs> widest aperture is f5.6 um, because it's a universal standard that every yeah. lens is measured at infinity, whether or not they can get there. And um, <laughs> How do they measure it? That's my question. I, I don't know, maths. But... Yeah. Um, I looked at page eight of the manual for that lens says if you're shooting at f2.8 and at one-to-one -one magnification, your effective aperture is f5.6. Um, and it was just like a mind explosion for me to yeah. realize that every lens does this uh, in every context. When you get closer, your effective aperture gets smaller. Uh, and uh, so that was a fun little moment of learning for me. And, oh, but uh, it, isn't, this is kind of normal. I mean, uh, making mistakes and putting a, something as complex as a book together, especially the kind of stuff that you put together, um, when Monica and I put uh, wrote the uh, the film photography handbook, we uh, we just missed an important entire paragraph about a method to develop a large format film in a in a simple way. Speaking which, of large format film, Chris, I just took a delivery of uh, uh, Kodak Portra 400 in 11 by 14 sheets. Okay, that's pretty <laughs> awesome. Yeah, they don't make it separately anymore. Um, they, um, uh, you have to do it like a bulk order and you have to buy like 500 sheets right. at a time. And, and it used to be people would uh, do like a group buy on it. But the number of sheets, it ends up costing something like $33 a sheet and you'd have to buy a box of 50. Um, but this year they, uh, they dropped the, uh, the, the quantity per box down to 10. And uh, so I bought a box of 10 sheets. I have an 11 by 14 studio film. It's taller than I am, mm -hmm. um, uh, a studio camera. And uh, so now I've got some film for it once I finish its uh, restoration. It's just stuck in my freezer until that happens. 
That is wild. So, <laughs> so the book, um, you ran this on Kickstarter. The campaign is long funded. Um, you are putting the finishing touches on the book right yeah, now. Yeah, um, I was actually working on the post-processing section just before our call Did started. Do you do all this on your own? Are you working with someone to help uh, with the layout? And... Uh, no, I do all the layouts, all the writing, all the That's images awesome. and, and everything else. Uh, I, although I, I will say that I've had a lot of people helping me uh, do grammar and I've got one person on the payroll uh, that is uh, double checking, you know, the the spelling and, and the grammar and um, and making sure that the things make sense, that I didn't use the same common word too many times in the same paragraph, yeah. et cetera, uh, just to make sure that it's really well read. And um, and so that's all done for every page layout that's been completed. The, the last section that needs to be done post-processing and then uh, table of contents, which I won't do until everything else is set, an index at the backside. And I want to write a nice epilogue saga of what the heck happened between the Kickstarter campaign and the final book production through a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, all the trials and, and grief and stress and lack of productivity, dealing with family life and so so, uh, so much else. So, um, But Chris, I want to share one more interesting image sequence of course, uh, for us to take a look here. at. We still have that image up. Uh, if I can uh, jump over, if it's not letting me... If you, if, you, if you click the gear icon, you can share something else. Uh, yeah, let's just go ahead and uh, bring up... Oh, none of these windows are actually working. Oh, here we go. Forgive the, uh, the dead oh, no air worries. here, everybody. Um, oh, that's, that's, that's uh, just a look behind the scenes of how this is done. Yeah, because, so I'll, I'll... because what we're doing, we're using... Um, let, me, let me just give you some background on what we're using here for the video production. So there's a, there's a tool out there called OB, OBS Ninja, which is um, separate from the OBS switcher. It's, a, it's nothing to do with it other than you can use it with OBS. And that transmits video at high quality, audio at high quality over continents. And that's what we're doing here. So we have two streams coming in from you. It's a, well, three streams, actually. It's a video stream, an audio stream, and a screen share stream. And, so uh, I'm looking at your actual screen there. Uh, well, y- yes, you are. And it's a 4K display. And so sending that across the uh, the internet to Germany is is time-consuming. And at low latency. So um, because in, instead of you telling me which picture to share from a PDF that you sent me, it's much, much easier if you just share a screen. And it, it, except that uh, except Chrome, that it doesn't is in, share now. <laughs> Chrome is in a state of crashing. Um, I, it's still apparently, I'm. can you still see me and hear me? That's yes, fine. But, see, see, uh, uh, but uh, otherwise, Chrome is unresponsive. So. So uh, I'm not going to touch it right now, and uh, and uh, I, I will describe the image, and and maybe you no, can. No, no, uh, no, no, no. We'll we'll make a cut here and okay. magically reemerge on the other side with your shared screen in three, two, one. There we go. It worked magically. So, <laughs> what what are you sharing with us here? So th- this is a flower, um, a uh, gooseneck loosestrife for anybody keeping track of flowers at home. And it doesn't look all that interesting right now, but I have some in my garden. And uh, every couple of weeks, I'll take an ultraviolet flashlight around the garden and just see what responses I get from the flowers that are out there. Some are dull; they don't fluoresce at all. But you would be surprised, Chris, 
How many flowers, when hit with an ultraviolet light, will bounce visible light back at you? And uh, I've been shocked at this so many times, but I'm still continuously discovering new things. Uh, so, wait, and so wait, wait, you're, you're using an ultraviolet flash, but a regular normal camera, and then exactly. you get a, vi a visible light response. That is so, uh, interesting, for The, the technical answer here is the ultraviolet light excites the electrons around specific atoms, and those electrons uh, with higher energy go to a higher orbit, but very briefly. It's pretty well instantaneously. They can't hold that. They're a very poor battery, and they release that. They go back to their original orbit. When they release that energy, they release it invisible light, uh, light that's at a lower energy level than the light that originally excited them to begin with because energy is lost in the process. Um, and so that means ultraviolet light can, in a way, create visible light um, on an atomic level. And, uh, you know, as sciencey as that is, oh, it becomes just beautiful as a result because <gasps> this Look is that, that flower um, under ultraviolet light. And is that just one flash? Uh, that's, uh, I believe this was a flashlight, uh, an ultraviolet flashlight. Oh, a flashlight, even. Okay. Um, and, uh, I may have light painted across over a slightly longer exposure just to make sure that I had things evened out a little bit. Sure. Um, but, so, uh, so you can, you can see that with your eyes if you... Oh, yeah, this is completely out. visible to your own vision. So when I'm yeah. out hunting around the garden, I'll spot something right away that gathers my attention. And so there's no, no, no trial did. and error. You, you immediately know if what flower gives you what kind of response. Exactly. Now, how you frame it and how you create a of viable course. image out of that, that just becomes the next step. And yeah. so I thought to myself, you know, I've got some ingredients here that I haven't used for a long time that I've been just wondering what I could do. What, what if I were to pick some of these flowers? And, and I have this geode. Uh, and I, I bought it because it was neat. It was open on both ends. And I've always been wondering what I could do with it, like this crystal tunnel. And I thought, well, what if I take um, some of those little flowers and I put them inside this little crystal tunnel and make them glow, right? And I thought, well, that opening is pretty small, but I have uh, the, uh, the Liowa 24-millimeter probe lens mm -hmm. um, that has this like rifle barrel-like end on it. And there was a moment of discovery here that I didn't expect, Chris, because... Um, and it's, and uh, it's a wide angle. Uh, it's, too, it's a wide so, angle yeah. in a small space. And so I yeah. thought that might work really nice. Um, but I didn't expect that the, the, uh, the lens has a, a ring of LEDs around, uh, uh, around the, the optics itself. And you could plug in a battery and, and, and illuminate that way. I wasn't going to do that. I was going to light from behind with an ultraviolet light. But it turns out that LED lights, the technology in LEDs, uses fluorescence. And, and so these lights on their own, not even being on, when the ultraviolet light hits them, they fluoresce. <laughs> they, they produce light. They produce light. Um, and so, okay, well, now I've got this light coming in from behind. Um, and so I've got this big uh, LED uh, flashlight, and you can see the orange glow inside the geode. That's not from any light source. That's from the fluorescence of the LED lights around the lens. That and that was crazy. just such a welcome ingredient into this framing. Uh, and so here I am tinkering away with all this stuff in my studio after I discovered those flowers uh, the night before, and I slept on it. And this is what came to me in my sleep, uh, is this concept, this idea. And I put those puzzle pieces together, um, and uh, this was the, the final result of, of that image, um, the, the concept being wow. executed fully. No, no wonder people are stealing your photography. I mean, <laughs> that is so mind-blowing. Uh, but it's, 
a, a connection of so many different ingredients and some of them unexpected. Like I did not expect to have this almost like fireside glow yeah. coming from the lens itself uh, that changed the, the light in the foreground to give a perfect contrast into the background. And Oh, and I mean, uh, look, look at the shadows those petals uh, throw on themselves. It's just, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's like from a different planet. <laughs> uh, well, I'll take that as a compliment. And uh, this yeah. was a late stage addition uh, to uh, the macro photography book, which um, has a section, it gets distilled from um, uh, the, the bare basics and understanding what lenses and gear do what and why you want to use certain things to controlling aperture to a deep lesson in diffraction that gets distilled down to common points we can all appreciate. And then we go into various different topics, you know, uh, uh, water uh, droplets and refractions and uh, snowflakes and freezing soap bubbles and ultraviolet fluorescence, like this kind of stuff. Um, but then one of my favorite sections of the book I call the masterclass, where it takes all of the knowledge uh, that was dished out in the first part of the book and combines it together in all of the different ingredients. You know, uh, this case, I need to understand uh, uh, diffraction and ultraviolet fluorescence uh, and, uh, and, and all the elements of macro photography for depth and focus stacking and uh, all that kind of coalesces into an image like this. And so once you have all of those puzzle pieces together, that part of the book shows you how they can all fit together in really interesting ways. So yeah, it's been fun. Oh, I, I imagine. So where exactly in the in the process are you right now? Um... So I, I've, uh, I've signed the, the documents for uh, for the press to go ahead and start ordering materials. And, uh, and so that's, that's going along my files in date is currently the end of this month. So I've got uh, like two weeks uh, uh, or so uh, before everything has to be completely finalized and in. Um, and uh, I'm not sure exactly what the press schedule is going to be like at this point. Um, but uh, I'm aiming for a 2020 release. I hope I, I, I'm dependent on, on when they can uh, schedule things in at this point. So we're, but, we're recording this mid-October 2020. So right. Uh, um, and I don't know when you're going to air it, Chris, but uh, hopefully by the time you do, I will be almost ready to throw a, a party and say, you know, pop a cork out of a champagne bottle and say, hey, the book is done. <laughs> make, make sure you do a slow-mo sh shot of that cork popping. Um, exactly. So um, uh, I'm, I'm a backer, so I'm looking forward to getting a copy as soon as, as, as it's ready. Um, if anyone else wants to get a copy of it, um, you will, you're probably going to going to serve the the kickstarter backers first right oh absolutely yeah and then yeah. Uh, people have been pre-ordering it since then and uh, it's basically going to be um from all the kickstarter backers i'm probably going to ship out a bunch uh from like really far off locations on the first day of me shipping like australia and, mm. and places like that just because i know it's going to take longer to get there um and then pretty well in the order in which the uh the orders were placed right so, so where uh, where can people order it if they want to so you can still order it uh at uh, it piggybacks off of my snowflake book website because the e-commerce system was already set up and that is at skycrystals.ca so skycrystals.ca i'll definitely put that in the show notes anything else you want to send people to uh, well uh, I would say my podcast as Photo Geek Weekly, and you've mm -hmm. been a guest on it a number of oh, yeah. times, and uh, photogeekweekly.com, uh, which we just pull stories down from the, the news cycle. Uh, this uh, this week's, as we recorded, uh, has all sorts of interesting implications as to how LiDAR improves mobile photography because of the new iPhone launches and what that means going forward when people really start to get innovative with that. Mm -hmm. And we just go down all of these different rabbit holes, and uh, we have so much fun with it. So uh, check that out at Photo Geek Weekly, and uh, of course, 
course, my website has been at the bottom the entire time for those watching on video. Uh, if you're listening, doncom.ca, D-O-N-K-O-M.ca. Everything is linked to there. Okay, and last question before I let you go. Um, iPhone 12 mini or Pro Max? Pro, iPhone 12 Pro. Um, <laughs> you want the LiDAR. <laughs> uh, well, I, I want the LiDAR. I don't want the, the bigger camera. phone. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't agree with Apple's decision to kind of make a lesser camera on the Pro than the Pro Max in terms mm -hmm. of pixel size of the camera you're going to use most often uh, and uh, sensor shift technology on the extreme wide angle one that's not available on the Pro. And they've, they've done that for generations. I've never liked the fact that they've done it, um, but they're still going to get my money. Okay, and with that, thank you so much, Don, for coming on the show. I wish you all the best with the book. I hope the prints turn out. Well, they will certainly print uh, turn out as, as good as you want them. I know that you'll have a very close eye on that. And um, with that, thanks, and till next time. Thank you very much. And that's it for this <laughs> this episode. Okay, I've, I've completely lost my ability to make an episode, obviously, because... Um, yeah. Anyway, so that was the interview. Go go check out his stuff. Go go check out the books and uh, especially the macro book, which I can't wait to get my hands on. Um, it's just it's just such an amazing project. It's just such a fun project. And I, having written a couple of books myself um, and just written them and done some photography for them, none of that as detailed as as what Don. Uh, is doing here i i my, my deepest deepest uh admiration for pulling that off by himself so um go check it out and uh yeah with that i think possibly we might be at the end for this episode i'm still looking at a structure to do these episodes honestly because the, the video part as as fun as it is and as as comparably simple it is for me to do that now to do the videos because i have the setup I, I use it almost every day um it has uh, it, it the workflow is getting quicker and faster it's still a bit more effort to do that uh as uh, as opposed to the pure audio production which is the the bookends on this video episode that you're listening to right now so i've I don't fully know how to do it. I'm still struggling with change. <laughs> Everyone is struggling with change. And uh, as I'm recording this, it is end of November 2020. So, yeah, still some time until things go back to normal, I guess. Um, yeah. So, anyway, um, I, I wish you all the best. I wish everyone here all the health in the world. Stay safe. I mean this honestly, stay safe because there's stuff out there that's not so nice right now. So, yeah, um, I'm going to try. I got, I'm going to try to be back a bit more often in, in the future. Maybe, <laughs> maybe audio only. Let's see. Uh, but yeah, again, thanks for your time. And uh, until then, take care. And that was it for this week. Thanks so much for your time and, of course, for your patience. <laughs> and uh, thanks again, all you supporters, all the patrons, for your continued support. If you feel like supporting the show, 
just join the wonderful group of supporters at tfttf.com slash support. Music for the show by Jeff Smith, silent partner in HP Gagarud Publishing, and uh, also the Slack challenges. Yeah, I know I'm slacking there. By Release Pixie, Matt Rafsitar Armstead. Those challenges are still going on on the Slack, by the way, and I still owe you at least one here in the show. So yeah, just saying they'll be back. Um, and if you want to join our Slack, which is the secret headquarters here um, with uh, with a wonderful community on it. The invitations for the Slack are still handed out by our chief invitation officer, CIO Rusty Russ. The link to get on the Slack is in the show notes. My name is Chris Marquardt. Now let me let me juggle those different hats. If you want to get in touch, you'll find me on social media at Chris Marquardt. That's Chris M A R Q U A R D T. If you want a live one-on-one mini photo workshop, you'll find me on sensei.photo. That's S-E-N-S-E-I dot photo. If you want to get your hands on an exclusive one-of-a-kind large format pinhole camera, the Markward International Pinhole, then go to internationalpinhole.com. That's internationalpinhole.com. And last but not least, if you want to learn how to do remote video and audio productions that look as amazing and sound as amazing as the as the segment with Don on this episode, you'll find me on obsnacademy.com. That's obsnacademy.com. And of course, go out and take amazing photos, share them with the world, be nice to each other, take care of yourself, be safe. And happy shooting. <laughs>